The Midwest Crime Files is an unscripted true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they are committed. Viewer discretion is advised. I'm your host, Sheena. And I'm a very sick Chris. And we're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that change them forever. Welcome to the 2022 COVID edition. If you haven't, <laughs> if, if you guys can't hear, well, we have COVID. Gina's kind of getting over it. I'm kind of in the middle of it. Yeah, so we sound, we sound nice and nasally. I sound nice and sexy with my deep, gravelly voice. But on an upside, a little plug for our sponsor of this episode, we've been using our Hydronique packets to try to get that extra vitamins and stuff in, so I don't know, maybe that'll help us get better. Yeah, right now it's hashtag not an ad, but we've actually been using it like yeah, a lot lately. for real. Like, there's no studies that show it helps, has anything to do with getting over COVID, but I figured it's not going to freaking hurt. Fucking anything will help at this time. This is the most miserable I've been, like, in a long time. Like, <laughs> and I know we're just kind of babbling on right now, but guys, this sucks. Whoever has had it already, good on you. If you don't have it, get vaccinated. Get to stay healthy, guys, because this is stupid. Like, stay home in your own little bubble and avoid other people, because this is stupid. Well, we I don't agree. want them to become, like, introverts. No, they got a podcast to listen to. They'll be fine. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to get on into this week's story. We're going to Wood River this week. And this is one heck of a story. Um, this is one that's really got my attention. And I read a book about it. And, you know, I just couldn't stop going down this rabbit hole. Because it's just, it's a little bit of a crazy story. This is the story of murder in Wood River. The Carla Brown story. Carla Brown was born in February 1956 to Floyd and Joellen Brown. She was the youngest of three girls. And people that knew the Brown family said they were just like this idyllic all-American family. But when Carla was still a young girl, she unexpectedly lost her dad in a freak accident while I think he was working. So... You know, you can imagine the turmoil that that would put on anybody losing their father at a really young age. And because of that, her and her mother would have a lot of ups and downs um, because they were both coping with loss. And both of Carla's sisters were older than her and had already moved out of the house. And so, you know, her mother, Joellen, is trying to raise her teenage daughter who's, you know, growing up without her father. And you can just imagine the tensions that were in the house. But despite that, Carla and her mother, um, they had the, a very deep connection and love for each other and were very, very close. But their bond was brutally severed on June 21st, 1978. In the early evening hours of June 21st, 1978, Carla's fiancé, Mark, was returning home. He had um, been at work, but he was coming home and helping with a friend of his to move some large items into he and Carla's house. They had just bought this house in Wood River. Yeah. They um, had moved in the day before, but still had, you know, a couple things they needed to do, so... He brings his friend over, and when he gets there, they notice that Carla's car is there in the driveway. So they walk in, and they're calling for her, and she's not answering. So Mark and his friend go down to the basement, and they find the deceased body of 22-year-old Carla Brown. She was nude from the waist down with a sweater on her top. Her face and her upper body were hunched over into a large bucket of water. Her hands were tied behind her back, and she had a pair of men's socks tied around her neck. That's ridiculous. That's disgusting. Like, 
I just can't even imagine what went through his head. So, I mean, he does what I think most people wouldn't immediately do, and he pulls her out of the water. Yeah, and, like, yeah, and I guess he starts doing some CPR, you know, or resuscitative breaths or something. Like, I'm sorry, if I find something, like, one of my family members like that, I'm definitely going all out, balls out, trying to, like, bring you back. I don't care if you've been dead for an hour, you know? Right, so he pulls her out, and there's some bubbling around her nose and mouth. Um, you know, he was hoping that he could save her, but Carla was gone. She was dead already. His friend called 911 and authorities arrived quickly after. Mark seemed genuinely horrified, devastated, distraught. I mean, his fiance that he just moved in with is dead in their brand new house. And he found, like, and it wasn't just like a natural death. Like, this was a very crazy and kind of disgusting death. Right. You know? He and Carla had been dating for almost five years and they recently had decided that it was time for them to commit and get married. So they bought this house on Acton Avenue in Wood River and moved in just the day before. Carla Brown was 4 foot 11 inches tall and she weighed approximately 100 pounds. So she so, was a small girl. Yeah, she was very, very... A small petite. lady. I'm sorry. Um, despite that, she was very pretty. She was blonde and despite being very petite, she had rather large breasts. And that was something that people noticed, obviously. Yeah. Um, she had been a cheerleader. She had gotten a lot of attention for her looks She was outgoing, and and some people even said that she was kind of flirty. Um, She had a large group of friends, and her and Mark had a long history together. They had been together five years, but they had had some breakups because in the past he was reluctant to want to commit and get married. And you got to think, like, this is the late 70s where, I mean, 22 seems so young. But if you were 22 and you had been with someone since you were 17 and they still wouldn't marry you. Right. I mean, that's... You know what I mean? That's a different time than now. Right. That wouldn't be a big deal now. But then it kind of was. Um, But they had recently reconciled. They had made plans to get married and they bought this house. So it didn't seem like they were, you know, on a track that would lead him to do something like that to her. Alva Bush was called in on June 21st, 1978. So we've talked about Al Bush a couple different cases. He was one of the lead investigators on the major case squad and crime scene investigators in the Metro East area at this time. Well, I mean, he's good at his job, so. Yes. Um, He evaluated the crime scene and he instantly noticed there were a couple of things that were really odd. So first, the socks around Carla's neck were very neatly tied together. And he thought that was weird because if you were in the midst of a struggle, you're not going to very neatly tie two men's socks together. Right. Like it's going to look more frenzied. Yeah, exactly. Her hands were tied behind her back with a white electrical cord, but it was so loose, the tying, that he felt like she could have easily gotten loose or grabbed her attacker so the binding on her hands didn't make sense he felt like that was applied after she was already incapacitated and he said that the sweater she had on first of all this was in the middle of hot summer right so she you wouldn't think that she'd be wearing a sweater And then it was fastened, the top button was fastened really perfectly on the top, and he thought that was weird too. If you had been in a violent struggle, it wouldn't have looked like that. Right. So he really felt like whatever was going on, this was staged. Okay. To look different than what it actually actually was. Right. So, I mean, that kind of makes them look at Mark a little bit more. You know what I mean? Because it would look like a staged scene. In the next room, Bush found a sofa that had wet spots on it and blood spots near the sofa. Underneath the sofa was a puddle of water with some blood. 
So it looked like someone had tried to clean up the scene by pouring water on the couch. And then that water pulled underneath and yeah. had blood in it. They found a coffee pot in the rafters above the couch area. Which led investigators to believe they that whoever had done this had used the coffee pot to try to clean up the mess on the couch. Jeez. So again, like, who would clean up a scene? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of pointing more and more towards the boyfriend. Right. So, Bush believed the struggle had occurred in the room with the couch, and that after Carla was incapacitated, she was moved to the adjacent room where she was found. The scene had been cleaned up and staged, indicating the perpetrator had spent a decent amount of time in that house. So this wasn't a quick in and out. An autopsy was performed immediately on Carla in 1978, and it showed a fractured jaw, two large lacerations to her forehead from an unknown source, and severe bruising around her neck. There was not a significant amount of water in her lungs, and so the cause of death was determined to be strangulation. So again, they felt like this was staged, and she was put in the water after she had been strangled. Well, and I guess, I mean, looking back at, like, what we're seeing now, Mr. Bush found, you know, with it being that, you know, he thinks it's staged... Like you said, he, Mark, thought, you know, had seen bubbles coming out of her nose. Right. Like, now that I'm thinking about it, you wouldn't, if somebody had drowned, you're not going to find air bubbles in their nose because the air is going to be replaced by, like, water and stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, he's good at his job. He is good at his job. He's very good at his job. A sexual assault was suspected because of how the body was found, but it wasn't confirmed. Now, you have to remember, like... This is the late 70s. This is before DNA. DNA. Scraping from under her fingernails were taken. And, you know, even though there wasn't DNA at that time, detectives and investigators were smart enough to keep this DNA evidence, even though it's not what they called it then, even though they weren't sure if it was ever going to be meaningful. Right. That, you know, they were still had enough you know, knowledge to, yeah, we're going to collect this. Maybe there's nothing it can tell us now, but, you know, and luckily they did because it solved a lot of cold cases. Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at just like from like the 50s to the 70s, the 70s to the 90s, the 90s to the 20s, or to the 2000s, I mean, (laughs) like look at like the forensic advancements on Mm -hmm. each set, you know, each 20 year period, it seems like, so yeah, like it's good on these cops that they're like, we know that we can't use it now, but maybe, just maybe, in a few, in a future time, this, this will be, be relevant. Helpful. Police had to look at Mark as a suspect, but, you know, he had a pretty solid alibi, and he had witnesses that substantiated it. Other early suspects included one of Carla's ex-boyfriends, who she had dated briefly while she had been broken up with Mark. There was also an unknown rapist committing sexual assaults in the Wood River area at the time. And two men who had been sitting outside on the porch next door the day of the crime were also looked at. All of these suspects, except the unknown rapist, because they didn't know who he was, were questioned and provided alibis, and they also all agreed to take lie detector tests and... As far as the detectives knew, they had all passed these lie detector tests. So they were running out of leads to follow up on. So eventually, the string of sexual assaults, those cases were solved. And an assailant was identified and arrested. So immediately, the detectives want to talk to this guy. they, They go to the county jail. They give him a lie detector test, and he passed. There was no evidence to connect him to Carla Brown, and he adamantly denied being the murderer. He did admit to the crimes that he was charged with, however. So, you know, they really, I mean, he was still on that suspect list, but there really wasn't anything that they could prove. Right. 
It wasn't long, however, before a cellmate came forward claiming that this rapist had admitted to Carla's murder. That being said, the detectives still were not able to connect him to the crime. Right. I mean, if you, it doesn't matter if you hear like somebody's statement, like, "Oh, we don't know what the motive, like the motivation of the other cellmate was." You right. Know? And the the cops still had no substantiation, like substantiating evidence at all that pointed a definitive finger like you did it you some bitch right i mean there was nothing that this like jailhouse informant told them that you know probably wasn't, wasn't already in knowledge. the media right. you know what i mean so there was nothing that they could be like oh this person definitely knows about right. what happened you know and they didn't know if maybe there was some kind of issue between the two and you know they were trying to settle a score or right i you mean know, there just wasn't anything to definitively connect him so they couldn't really charge him mark carla's fiance he had been ruled out his his alibi was just too solid there's no way he couldn't have done it um the rapist again still kind of hanging out but not really a good connection police believe the ex-boyfriend or the neighbor and his friend were more likely suspects so Carla's ex-boyfriend was known to be really upset when Carla broke up with him and he had apparently bothered Carla in the past almost to the point of like maybe being a low-key stalker. Yeah. So he was looking like a pretty good suspect. Yeah. And their uh, neighbor, Paul, and his friend John, they were basically, I mean, this is the late 70s, they were basically two potheads and they spent their time sitting on the front porch smoking and drinking so they're like the chicken chong kind of the investigators believe they were of limited intelligence and were generally <laughs> losers i mean they basically and what's, uh, what's funny is that i know that you read that somewhere and that's how they probably the, the cops described them limited intelligence they're losers they're potheads yeah like the book that I read on this case was actually written by a prosecutor, um, and, you know, that's exactly how they described them. They were pothead losers. Yeah. And that's how they described them. I'm not saying all potheads are losers. I'm just saying that's how the police describe these two. Right. Um, the day before Carla was killed, she had been moving boxes with her fiancé and friends into her new house. After they moved in, the couple had the friends that helped them move over for a party. Another friend of Paul and John said that he was at Paul's that night and that the three men had watched the couple move in. They had discussed how good-looking Carla Brown was. The friends knew Carla from high school and said that Paul and John asked several questions about her. They made lewd comments about her breasts. And the men apparently attempted to talk to Carla and were pretty disappointed when she didn't invite them over to their party. So they're lower intelligent stoners and now just creeps. Well, yeah, they kind of like tried to hit. Well, I don't know if they tried to hit on her because her fiance was there, but they tried to at least communicate and like get invited to her party. Can I get some fries with those shakes? Oh, jeez. With that shake? God, I'm delusional sorry and yeah like she basically was like yeah no <laughs> thanks please believe that paul who was the next door neighbor was the most likely suspect he lived next door he would have had time to be at the scene longer because he did live next door um you know he would have had time to clean up and you know they said they didn't feel like the suspect had gone far to clean up because there was like no blood trail through the yard or anything like that. Right. So they really felt like the neighbor Paul was looking like a pretty good suspect. But they didn't have any evidence. So it's just suspicion. Between 1978 and 1980, despite ongoing efforts by the Wood River Police Department and the Illinois State Police, Carla's murder case went cold. Her mother and sisters were frustrated, they were devastated, and they just they really just wanted justice for Carla. The tragedy haunted Carla's family who just wanted closure. It also haunted Alva Bush. 
he wanted more than anyone to solve this case. There were things about this case that bothered him from the beginning, from the way that the scene looked staged. Right. You know, he just, he couldn't get it out of his head, no matter how many other murder cases he worked. Well, like, I'm sure that that's something that probably weighs on a person like that. Like, your one job is to go to crime scenes and piece, like, I'm sure he's, like, great at puzzles. You right. know, I'm sure this, this is a man that has to have everything in order and in place and perfectly and everything and it drives him absolutely freaking nuts that nothing was put like he couldn't put all the pieces together to make a perfect picture right so it just ate at him and so he goes on this unrelated business trip and he's introduced to a forensic expert on photo enhancement and he decides to ask this expert to take a look at pictures from Carla's case and he got a pretty unexpected result from this consultation Dr. Homer Campbell of the University of New Mexico examined photographs of Carla Brown's murder scene and autopsy. He believed that the lacerations on her face were caused by some TV trays that you could see in the pictures that were right near the couch. The police were able to get the TV stands that Mark still had. Mark had moved out of that house. Well, I mean, yeah. And was living somewhere else, but still had these TV stands. And unbelievably, when they get this TV stand from Mark, there are hair and blood from Carla on it. So they found one of the murder weapons. But it was what Dr. Campbell said next that floored the investigator. He said, quote, what about the bite mark? End quote. So here's the problem. Bush didn't know there was a bite mark. <laughs> Campbell pointed out bruising on Carla's car, uh, collarbone and said that that was distinctly a bite mark. The investigators were stunned. The photographs, though, were not adequate for a comparison analysis. Which, like, once again, like, we're starting to get into... Like, the late 70s, early 80s. This is when forensics was really starting to kind of take off. Right. You know? So, this so is... How the hell did he see a bite mark? Like, well, when nobody... Like, that's what I don't get. How does he see that as a bite mark when everybody... Like, Mr. Bush was at the crime scene and saw the body and didn't notice it. So, here's the kind of the interesting thing. And where this case is sort of connected to Ted Bundy's. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right? Surprised you at that one. Yeah. So this was right after, or right around the time that Ted Bundy was convicted. Ted Bundy was convicted based off bite mark evidence, and he was the first major case in the United States convicted off of bite mark evidence. That's insane. Yeah. So this was like brand new forensics at the time. This was not something that... Was mainstream, I guess. Right. And so Dr. Campbell and another one of the specialists that we're going to talk about were actually involved in the prosecution of Ted Bundy and they helped the Wood River Police find the killer for Carla Brown. So when you're saying bite mark, that's, that's not dental, like forensics like this is actually like taking the imprints of their the teeth and matching them up to the bite marks and like right. okay no this is a match right now we're going to talk a little bit more about that later at this time this was brand new cutting edge science today's world there's some differing opinions but we'll get there so like i said though these photos were not very good for comparison analysis. Well, it being quality back then. Um, right. Cameras is and that so very good. Two more years passed, and the investigators kept investigating, but they weren't finding anything new. And that's when they decided to visit the FBI Academy at Quantico and meet with behavioral analyst John Douglas. So John Douglas was one of the very first FBA FBI agents to profile a murderer. God, that's it seems like that's like that's so commonplace now right. nowadays. Like Well, and this is what I'm saying, like our little bitty Wood River, Illinois case was part of like cutting very edge. cutting edge at the time. 
And so John Douglas is actually the man who's known as like pioneering criminal profiling. And the TV show Mindhunter is based off of him. Really? Yes. Very famous profiler. In fact, he interviewed several serial killers as part of his research, including John Wayne Gacy. The clown murderer. Ted Bundy. The guy that ate people. No, Ted Bundy is the serial killer in the Pacific Northwest, and then he went to Florida. Okay. You're thinking of Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay. David Berkowitz. Don't know that one. Son of Sam. Charles Manson. Nazi. And Dennis Rader. No clue. Dennis Rader is the BTK killer. In 1982, criminal profiling, though, was in its infancy. And again, this case, Little Wood River Police Department, has some real big things going on with this case. And and because of this case, Chris now has two more names I have to research and try to figure out who the hell they were. (laughs) Because... I mean, it's, I actually three because I I don't I really know Ted Bundy's case. Oh, like, good lord! Like I know the it's one of those ones where I know the name. Most prolific serial killer in United States history. Agent Douglas gave the investigators an extremely detailed profile of the killer, just by looking at the pictures of the crime. How the fuck do you do that? This is sorry blow for the, your mind. Sorry for the f bomb, but how the fu- like blow. Blow my mind. So he said the murderer was unorganized and unsophisticated. He believed the killer, this was the killer's first time killing, and he didn't believe that it was the killer's original intent when he went to the home. He believed that Carla had rejected a sexual advance. He believed the killer was a white male in his late 20s with a high school education, some vocational training, and an unkempt appearance. He said the cops likely spoke to the killer already and that he would likely pass a lie detector test. He said the killer knew Carla's routine and likely lived or worked nearby. He even said the killer likely drove a Volkswagen. He told them that if they created a media frenzy indicating they were closing in on the killer, the killer would be spooked and nervous. And he said the killer would reach out to the investigators. He said the killer likely left the area shortly after the crime due to nervousness, but had probably since returned. He thought that he would, again, reach out if the police indicated in the media that they were close to an arrest. It was an incredible and precise profile. Okay, okay. So, all how the fuck do they know he drove a Volkswagen? Like, where did... How do you get... Like, all the other stuff is amazing. Like, how do you be like... Yeah, he also probably drives a Volkswagen... I don't like, know, because like, I am not a, the brilliant Agent like, Douglas. Like, that's just a very odd and specific thing. Like, like I could see, you know, being un, unkept and not highly intelligent. But then also being like, yeah, he's probably only high school with vocational training, but probably drives a Volkswagen. Like, I don't... How the fuck... Like, what... I, okay. Like, <laughs> like, I don't know what little boxes there are to ticks, like... I wonder if it's like one of those like multiple choice questionnaires like that he's filling out whenever he's like trying to do this and be like unkept kept you know clean unclean oh he's unkept clean you know this this what kind of car BMW Chevy Volkswagen Datsun lots of blah 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 no I'm just gonna pick Volkswagen yeah I like there's a science to it now okay so now this is something I want to like I want to get interested in yeah is like how they how a forensic or FBI profiling yeah how they actually profile a killer so just wait because I'm going to blow your mind again in a little bit so investigators turn their attention back to their primary three suspects the ex-boyfriend of Carla's did not match this profile by the FBI profiler at all. So they kind of sit him aside. They're not ruling him out necessarily, but they're putting him over here. Right. And they focus on the two men that were next door, Paul and John. However, they're both almost a perfect match to this profile. Well, yeah. They believe that Paul was the most likely suspect because he's the one who lived next door. So they went back and reviewed Paul's alibi. And Paul said that John had came over that day. They had spent the day smoking and drinking on the porch. He said that John came by in the morning, but then left to fill out job applications. Oh, I'm sorry. 
That Paul said they spent the whole day together drinking and smoking on the porch. John said he came by that morning, but he left to go fill out job applications and he ran into Paul again later that night at a friend's house. So their alibis are not matching. How that was missed the first time around beats the hell out of me. But their their alibis did not match up and Paul did not pass his lie detector the first time around. Another thing that was just kind of overlooked. Right. But John did pass it. Now, you remember the FBI profiler said that he'd most likely pass probably it. passed it. So they're like, well, Paul looks pretty guilty, but John, maybe John, maybe John's but, guilty. But this freaking guru, freaking wizard, freaking profiler is like, yes, he passed the pay. He passed it. He passed the exam and he drives a... I bet you you're going to tell me he fucking drives a Volkswagen. Just wait. So the investigators secured bite mark expert Dr. Lowell Levine, a forensic dentist who had recently testified against Ted Bundy. The bite mark evidence convicted Ted Bundy, Bundy and sent him to the electric chair for two murders in Florida. So, like, we're talking some pretty high-profile so, forensic like, people involved in our little Wood River well, case. Okay, and, like, Wood River isn't that, like, it's not like a major city. Like, no. this is an offshoot, would you say it's an offshoot of St. Louis, maybe? Yeah, like, but I, I know, mean, but it's, it's still tiny. So tiny compared to nationwide freaking killers and stuff right. like that. And we're getting, like... But this shows you the tenacity of these detectives. They did not want to let this case go. Right. And so they kept digging and searching and pulling in these experts, these high-profile experts. Right. They spent a fortune on this case. So Dr. Levine suggested that they exhume Carla's body and take new photos of the bite marks so that he could compare them to cast if they have their prime suspect's teeth casted. He stressed that he would not be able to positively identify the perpetrator, but he could rule out certain suspects based off their tooth spacing if they're vastly different. So he's not saying I'll to be able to tell you for 100% certainty that this suspect did it or this suspect, but he said I've got enough information that I can rule someone out if their teeth are very differently spaced than this bite mark. So Carla's body was exhumed. Her family gave permission. They said it hurt them to, you know, pull her from her rest. But yeah. they wanted this solved. They wanted it solved. Right. The only thing I don't get is, like, this forensics guy is like, oh, yeah, I can compare bite marks and everything. But it's, like, four years after the case now. Like, it's 80, 1982. Right. And they're exhuming her body. Like, how is the body going to be in any condition and they weren't sure if it would be. They were not sure. They were gambling for sure. But state's attorney Don Weber and the detectives in this case felt like exhuming her body was also a chance to take the advice of the FBI profiler and create a media frenzy. And they thought if they create a media frenzy, they might draw out their killer. So that's what they did. They called several press conferences. They indicated that they had rock-solid evidence. And, you know, they said when they exhumed her body, it was in pretty decent shape. And they were able to get some some more pictures and stuff of the bite marks. But it wasn't as useful as they had hoped. And actually, they got more use out of telling the media how great it was. Right. Because they were spooking their suspects. So I wonder, like, in a murder case, like, the person that's murdered, can they be, like, can they be cremated? You know what I'm saying? Like, should they be cremated? That's something that I always, you know, wondered. Because we see it every once in a while that a body, they request to exhume the body because, you know, there might be new evidence or something like that. I wonder if that's something that the family, like, goes through kind of in their mindscape as well. Like, do we cremate them? Do we bury them alive? You know, not bury them alive, but, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but you you know what I'm saying, but bury them intact in the hopes that if they don't have any evidence that maybe just maybe like down the line, right. Can they be exhumed and maybe helped? 
Yeah. Like, that's just, I don't know, that's just a weird thing that I'm thinking of right now when I'm listening to this, because it's... I mean, as far as I know, once the coroner releases the body, the family can do with it what they wish. Right. Now, that being said, I I mean, that's something to certainly think about if it's a victim of homicide as a family member. Right. I guess maybe nowadays... Do you want to destroy that evidence? Right. Well, and I guess maybe nowadays, the forensics is... More in depth, I think, in a murder case than it was maybe back in the seventies. I think stuff it like depends. That. I think it depends where you're at and what circumstances are. Right. For sure. I mean, we've seen some cases where it's not. Um, one thing that they did though when they exhumed her was they had Dr. Mary Case perform a second autopsy on Carla's body, and she found some things that were missed on the first autopsy. She opened the skull, which apparently was not done the first time. Which is weird. I thought that was... I I would think that would be common, but it wasn't done the first time. And she found bruising on the scalp and skull fractures. So she believed that the blows to Carla's head had caused her to become unconscious and breathe very shallow. She believed that the foam around the nose and mouth indicated that Carla was alive when her head went into the water. Oh, shit. And she believes that Carla drowned after being incapacitated by a head injury. So maybe I was I was completely wrong with my whole bubble theory. Well, you know, there was thoughts both ways with that. Two different, you know, two different pathologists had very different thoughts on what those bubbles meant. Um, because the first pathologist thought that when he pulled her out of the water, the air from her lungs expelled causing the bubbling therefore she didn't drown whereas the second pathologist is saying it's evidence that she did so i mean the crime had been more vicious than originally indicated and dr levine the bite mark expert was present and he confirmed at the time of autopsy that the marks on her collarbone were indeed a bite mark like, that's just still, like, weird. To me. I guess, I mean, once you die, your body stops, you know, healing itself. So, I guess any wound that you have is still going to be there. But four years afterwards, that's just... I, I, my guess, I guess, is decomposition more right. than anything. But I guess if you're embalmed, right. like, that's the whole point of embalming is to make it so you don't decompose. Are decomposed at a slower rate. So. Right. So, I mean, apparently it was enough where they could examine it. Multiple friends of Paul and John came forward after seeing this enormous media coverage on the investigation. And they told detectives that a few days after the murder, John told multiple friends that he was a suspect because he was next door visiting Paul. So, John is the friend of the neighbor. Yeah. He also told friends that he had seen Carla's body. And he described that she had been bitten on the collarbone and found in some water. He allegedly told friends that he had been at Carla's house the day of the murder, but denied any involvement. But here's the problem. If he told these people she had been bitten in 1978... Even the detectives didn't know she had been bitten until 1980. Well, so that's an issue that I'm going to have with this is, was that evidence that was put out? No. So that wasn't released to the public at all? That the, Not the, the, until the... 1982. Right. When but... this media blitz came. So, I mean, there were people that were like, well, it's funny they're coming forward with this now. They didn't come forward with it in 1978. Right. And what the prosecutor said was that these witnesses did not understand the significance of the things that John said until this media blitz in 82, where they realized that these bite marks were not common knowledge then. And that's when they put it together in their head and only the killer would have known that detail. Right. And John knew the intimate details of the crime that only the killer should have known. Okay. So then, like, and then normally whenever I hear them say that, like, they, they're, he knows, he's telling stuff that it's not even released in the press yet. 
Right. Like, that's... Well, the... even the detectives <clears throat> in 1978 did not know she had been bitten. So for him to be telling people in 1978 that she had bite marks... But how the hell are you going to remember that this one guy told you this one... that Oh, there were bite marks on this... I mean, I guess maybe because it's a significant event. Right. But shit, you asked me something about a significant event four years ago... I'm going to have some hard time doing some recall. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there is definitely reason for people to be like, ooh, four years later, how can they... Right. I mean, you know. You know, we all know that I play devil's advocate every once in a while, and this is one of those things where it's just like, eh, I mean, okay, I could see, like, I can see your point where they're like, oh, yeah, it's significant now. Right. But, like, how are you remembering you know? Or, I mean, is it just sparked by them saying that, you know, or is it Something that's, you know, made up because, you know. Well, and I, my thought is they probably thought he was full of shit at the time it happened and just talking out his ass. Right. And then maybe down the line they realize, oh, was I talking to a killer? Right. Hey guys, it's Gina. And it's Chris. And we want to tell you about a new product we recently discovered. It's called Hydronique. It's unique hydration. And what it is, is it's individual servings, basically your multivitamin in powder form that you put into a bottle of water or a different drink if you prefer. And I will tell you, I usually do not like vitamin powders or electrolyte powders, but this one tastes really, really good, and I'm very picky, so that says something. Yeah, and I like it because it is caffeine-free and sugar-free. You know, me being a diabetic and trying to be on a keto diet, it helps me fulfill a nutritional aspect that I was missing, but also doesn't give me the added sugars and extra junk right absolutely and it doesn't have any artificial dyes or flavors either so i feel comfortable giving it to our kids which is amazing and another thing that i'm excited to try it for is when i get to drink some wine because it's chock full of b vitamins so hopefully it'll ward off a hangover too yeah you can visit the website hydronique hydration it's www.hydronique.hydration.com. Or you can visit them at amazon.com. That's how, where we found them at. Yes. And Amazon is offering a $10 discount code at checkout for the next week. Yeah, so head on over and find your Hydronique. So the investigators, they call Paul back in and they want to question him again about June 21st, 1978. It's been four years. Paul changes his story a little bit. He now says that he and John um, were together that morning and that he came, that John left and came back that afternoon And when John came back that afternoon, he was sweaty and out of breath. He was wearing a yellow shirt that was soaked in water. And he had been inside Paul's house cleaning up. So, very different than we sat on the porch and smoked and drank all day. Right. He gave, he said that John gave a third person story about how he thought the crime may have occurred. And he believed that Carla turned down the murderer's sexual advances and that he raged at her, resulting in her death. He just, he was saying things almost like somebody, like, we're talking about Paul here. And it almost seemed like if Paul wasn't there, he knew exactly what happened. Right. And so they asked Paul, do you think that John is the killer? And he said that now that he thinks about it, yeah, he thinks that his friend, John, was the killer. He willingly agreed to have a dental cast made of his teeth for comparison of the bite marks. And so, you know, police are now thinking that their killer is John Pranty. Yeah. Even his friend Paul seems to have come to that conclusion. Throughout the investigation, it was determined that after the murder of Carla... John Pranty left the area for a while and went to Louisiana. Check on that profiler's list. 
I'm reading, I read a little bit. He told friends that he had to get out of town because police were harassing him about Carla's murder. He drove a Volkswagen. <laughs> the fucking profile isn't a profile. He's a fucking oracle. He had a history of rejection from women. He was unkempt, all as Douglas had predicted. John was looking like their man. He met the FBI's profile to a T. He drove the Volkswagen. He left town. He how the fuck back. do you find, like, how? Like, I have to know. Is it is this profiler still alive? John Douglas? I believe so, yeah. I need to ask. I want, I'm going to email him and be like, <laughs> how did you know it was a Volkswagen? <laughs> Like, what can, like, what steps did he take to re, like. Well, uh, like I said, he interviewed almost like every prolific serial killer in the United States and spent years researching how their brains work. Well, this is now my obsession, and I'm going to be looking into profilers. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Because that is, like, it's nuts that he was able to a T. Yes. To a T. Describe. Everything that John was. Yes. Down to being unkept, trouble with women, Volkswagen, left for a little bit, and passing. Like, it's like, how the, like... It's mind-blowing. How the fuck, like, I want to know, like, did he have to, like, sell his soul to the devil to get this kind of, like, superpower? Like, he's a super, he's a fucking, he's a superhero. It's exactly what he is. He's a superhero. His mystic power, his power is freaking... Criminal profiling. Criminal profiling. To, he can look at pictures of a crime scene and tell you everything you need to know. And, and it came from fucking pictures. Yes. That's the thing. It didn't even come from just seeing the guy or talking to him. It yeah. came from the pictures that they took. Yep. Gee, that's fucking... It's creepy. It's insane. It's a little creepy, but it's a, amazingly cool. So, what is... Even cooler is, just as he predicted, as the press covered this exhumation, John Pranty grew really nervous. He started telling friends that um, he was nervous and that he was afraid they were going to pin this crime on him. One of his friends, who was secretly an informant and wearing a wire... (laughs) Uh, talked to him, and John talked about how he thought this was all going to get pinned on him. And eventually, as predicted by the profiler, he reached out directly to the prosecutor. And you know what he said? He said, quote, he was fine being a witness, but didn't want to be a suspect, end quote. Exactly like the profiler predicted. Exactly. To a T. Like, could not have been... Closer to correct. The police were able to get cast from John, Paul, and their other suspect. And all three of these dental casts were compared by Dr. Levine to the photos taken of the bite marks. So Dr. Levine, again, is the forensic dentist who was essential to prosecuting Ted Bundy. In a blind comparison, Dr. Levine determined that only one cast out of the three was even remotely close to the bite mark, and he found that the one out of the three had very similar spacing to the bite mark on Carla Brown's shoulder and felt like that it it was very likely a match. And it was John Pranty. And and it's not like somebody's going to refute your freaking testimony at this point. You just bagged Ted Ted Bundy with this same kind of shit. Nobody in their right mind is going to be like, that's a bunch of crap. That's a crock of shit. Right. I mean, like, if there's nobody in this in this world that's going to be like, oh no, you, Ted Bundy, who is that? Oh please. Exactly. I mean, they had some high profile. This is a lot of high profile shit for freaking for a, Wood River. But good on the freaking investigators, the detectives, because for if, pushing. If it, it wasn't for them, it would never have gotten this no. far. And it couldn't like it, it would have died right there. It would have died. It, it, would have still be a cold case. And thank God for him, uh, Mr. What's it, the Al. Al Bush. Like, being so intuitive and being on a non-related work trip, learning about forensic photography or, like... Right. Yeah, for, uh, photo enhancements. Yeah. And being like, oh, hey, there's a bite mark, which then opened up a whole other fucking can of worms that right. wasn't... Like, at that point, the case was dead, and there was nowhere to go. 
but him being diligent in his job and his duty, like, and needing the all the pieces to fit together, right. was like, no. And, and like I said, it was because he went on, on a random trip that yeah. wasn't work-related, and yeah. he met up with this random guy that be, fucking is an expert in this... Brand, like, he's an expert in this brand new field. Right. So many brand new forensics for the which, time. And which brings in the brand new forensic art, like, the person that deals with freaking bite marks that just put away the biggest freaking serial killer in the United States history. Right. Like, there's just so many things that if if he wouldn't have made... I, I would say, say if Mr. Bush didn't put that, or take that trip, none of this, like, none of the no. pieces would have started fitting together. It's like fate. Right. It has to be. Before police could arrest Pranty, he had gone to his friend Paul and had a very long conversation in which Paul's wife said that Pranty tried to confuse Paul and convince him to change his testimony and basically said that the st- the testimony Paul was giving to the police was wrong and that Pranty was not at Paul's house that day at all. So Paul recants his earlier statements that Why? Printing. Why? So from what I can tell, Paul was not very intelligent and I think John manipulated him. He got into his head and even Paul's wife was like he was there trying to confuse Paul. Paul was sure until Pranty went there and Talk, basically talked him into changing his story. But it didn't matter. John Pranty was arrested for the murder. And Paul was arrested also for obstruction of justice. Good for fucking him. Like, good for, like, not letting Paul get away with shit. Soon after, an ex-girlfriend came forward and claimed that John Pranty had trouble with impotence and rejection. Again, right back to that FBI profiler who had actually predicted that. He also, she also said that he had an explosive temper and when he was rejected, he had become very violent in the past and he had bit her in the shoulder several times during sexual encounters. Not looking good for Paul. No, not at all. I'm sorry, for John. John Pranty told several different accounts of the day in June and ultimately said that he had a poor memory and he couldn't remember it clearly. He maintained his innocence, however, and denied attempting to sexually assault and murder Carla Brown. Police were able to find several witnesses, though, that could place John Pranty at Paul's house next door to Carla that day. Additionally, a witness claimed that she saw a man matching John's description down to the shirt that Paul said he was wearing, that yellow shirt, talking to Carla in her driveway that morning as this witness was in a vehicle nearby. In July of 1983, John Pranty went to trial for the murder of Carla Brown. Despite having his own expert witness that contradicted the prosecution's bite mark experts, he was convicted of first-degree murder. Although he was facing the death penalty, he was spared that and sentenced to 75 years in prison. This was one of the first cases to use criminal profiling, bite mark evidence, and photo enhancement in Illinois history. In fact, this was only the third or fourth case nationally to use bite mark evidence after Ted Bundy. Now, I'm going to piss some people off, though. This was all circumstantial. <coughs> I'm sorry, but there, this is all circumstantial evidence. We have witnesses that place him... In the driveway. Mm-hmm. Okay? I can be in your driveway every morning. Doesn't matter. Yeah. That doesn't make me a killer. I have, once again, nobody's going to refute this, but I'm going to refute it now, playing devil advocate. The bite mark evidence. It wasn't a match. It was close. The spacing was close. It but, wasn't definitive. But it wasn't definitive. Yeah. There was no DNA at this time, so it's not like we could take the DNA scrapings from under her nails and compare him to John's. There was he was impotent, so there goes that. Right. I mean there there is no hard evidence that puts him at the scene of the crime. Not a fingerprint, not anything. 
Right. Now, so, granted, I'm going to tell you tell you my thoughts, but then we're going to talk a little bit more because this the story ain't even over. My thoughts. I believe John Pranti is guilty. I believe he's guilty too. I'm I just, think the friend Paul is guilty as shit too. I don't know if he was there, but he definitely he might help was with, an accessory after the fact. He might probably maybe help with cleanup. I mean, I definitely think at the very least he was an accessory after the fact. He knew way more than he told. From his jail cell, though, John Pranty maintained his innocence, and he attempted several times to appeal his conviction. To this day, he still maintains his innocence. He was granted parole in December of 2019 after serving 36 years in prison. So what do you think about that? That's fucking dumb. But it's ill. So I didn't think, though, that you would really be granted parole if you didn't take responsibility for your crime. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong in that. Apparently I am. But I always thought that parole boards, if you didn't take responsibility and show remorse, they would deny you. But I guess not. While still in prison, Pranti's attorneys were able to get permission to do DNA testing with the evidence from under Carla's fingernails. But the DNA was too degraded, and so they couldn't successfully test it, which is unfortunate. Right. Because I'd love to know if it was positive. Okay, so, and this is one of those things where, like, he, he was convicted of the murder. Yeah. Served his sentence, paroled, released. If they, like, the only thing that they would have gotten from that is that, yes, this was definitively him. Right? If the DNA, if or they, they could have him, even though he's already served his sentence, that he still, and he still wants to be exonerated. So, so that would have that conviction off of his record if they can prove that he's innocent. And he, even though he's been paroled, he is still trying to do that. Right. I personally think he's guilty, but he's I do t- still I, working pretty dang hard. To I do too, his but there's like, like I said, like, None of the evidence was concrete. Right. No, you're right. Like and we were, we were on hopes and dreams alone. Real, like honest. Like if you honestly think about it, it's hopes and dreams and wishes that you get a jury that's able to convict this. Right. You know, a prosecutor that knows what the hell he's doing and knows how to walk around and actually talk to your, you know, star witnesses or not your uh, your expert witnesses right. to be, you know, to bring the credibility that's needed. So one thing that they've tried to defute in several appeals is that in the time since this conviction bite mark evidence has been discredited a lot a lot we've talked about it once or twice it's kind of considered junk science now but the problem is is that at the time of his trial there were other bite mark experts who testified for the defense that this was not a match so, from a legal standpoint, he's already challenged that evidence. So, he's not going to get his conviction thrown out because he already had a chance well, to... Well, because they weren't saying... I mean, the expert wasn't saying that it was a match. It was... The, the spacing was similar. You know, it was... Right. A, it consistent. Was sim- it was consistent, not a match. Right. It was consistent. So, so I, mean, I mean, he can't really get it thrown out just on the fact that the the evidence against him is now considered junk science. But I because do, he's already had he already had a chance to defend himself against that evidence. But they're still saying like there's an attorney named Lindsay Hagee of the Exoneration Project, and she proclaims that John Pranty was wrongfully convicted, and she is still trying to get him freed. And like I said, bite mark evidence has been discredited since the 1980s. I mean, there's been DNA testing that has exonerated several people that were convicted because of bite mark evidence after Ted Bundy. And many of those that Dr. Levine provided this expert testimony against have since been exonerated based off DNA. So to say that this at the time was very cutting edge... You know, now here we are 40 years later, we know a little better. Right, but... He it, probably would not... I don't know if he would have I don't think been it, convicted today. This one, I don't even think this would have went to court. It may not have. Like, I'm sorry, the prosecution comes up to you with some witness testimony, some very fringe freaking bite mark evidence, and, yeah. like, once again, like I keep going back to this, there was nothing concrete. 
there was nothing that pointed like he did it. Right. This is this is John's shit, and it was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I still think he's guilty, but I mean, I like I once again understand the legality part of it, where the evidence is. Yeah. The evidence was nothing. So the prosecutor Don Weber, however, believes that the fact that John had knowledge of intimate details of the crime proved that he was the killer and that that more than the bite mark evidence i guess when they pulled the jury that was more convincing to the jury than the bite mark evidence so the fact that he put several people on the stand that said john pranty told me that this woman was in water when it wasn't released this woman was bitten when even the detectives didn't realize it at the time but the detectives so, but at the time that those people started coming forward it was public knowledge well, when they at did, the time that he allegedly said it, and these people testified that he allegedly said it then. That doesn't matter, though. Well, like I know what you're saying, but you did a media you did a media blitz to try to flush out the the killer, which, on all honesty, probably it, it most likely worked. But you put out information that people then like you can't like I'm going by. Like a psycho, like a psychological. Well, it's kind basically of... like the witnesses' words against John Pranty's, and they're saying that the jury found the witnesses to be more reliable than John. Once, and once again, this is a reason why I'm saying he, the prosecutor. Their word against his word. The basically. prosecution did an amazing job taking freaking hopes and wishes and turning it into a conviction. But and the other thing too is from reading the book, this wasn't just like one or two friends who knew each other. This was like four, five, six different witnesses. Some that didn't even know each other that had all heard this same story from John Pranty. So, what would their motivation to lie be? You know, so I understand. I can understand why the because jury they, believed them. Their motivation was because, oh, he's kind of creepy. Oh, he's he. Oh, he fits the bill. But oh. five or six, you know, people that didn't know each other all had the same story that he told this story. I can get, you know what I'm saying? I can find somebody that looks creepy and get five or six people to be like, oh yeah, he looks like he could do something like but that. But that's not what they said. They said he specifically told them very specific things. His stories I, never did match up. You know, I don't know. I, I have to believe, I honestly believe that he is guilty. Do I believe that the forensics was strong? Absolutely not. But well, I mean, if we're going by today's standards, there was no forensics. No, but you know, Don Weber, the prosecutor, believes that Pranty killed Carla after she rejected his advances. And I believe that as well. I, I'm not saying the evidence is there to support it. I think it does say something that even paroled, he's still trying to find a way to prove his innocence. Yeah. But, I mean, that definitely makes me take a second thought at it. But I still, I don't know. I just... I think he's probably guilty. He is now 71 years old and he's maintained his innocence for 43 years. He's been out longer than he's... Well, he's or... been out since 2019. Oh, so He hasn't mind. been out very long. Carla Lou Brown was just 22 years old when her life was tragically taken from her in a brutal, senseless attack. She was just beginning her life only to have it stolen from her. And through all of the craziness that is this case, at the end of the day, her family has to live without her forever. Yeah. And that's that's just devastating. But I think what kills me about this case the most is just, like we've said a couple times, how high profile and cutting edge... At the time. Yeah. Like and, you... and it brought in, like, all these big names like, to I... little southern Illinois. That profiler, like... Holy fuck balls. Yeah. Like, well, that's... the main character in Mindhunter is based off Douglas. Well, I'm... The gonna, FBI profile. I'm going to start watching Mindhunter then. Because that... Like, that's just amazing. Yeah. Like, and that's something that... Screw actually true crime. I'm going to start getting into freaking forensic freaking profiling. What it's I'm... insane. It, it's crazy. And that's another thing that led the jury to convict John Pranty. And I'm not saying that it's rock-solid evidence. Clearly it's not. But when you've got a top FBI profiler telling you they did, how would that all look? of these things, and they just happen to match to this guy that 
all these other people are telling you surprised they new didn't, things. I'm surprised they didn't take the FBI profile and try him as a witch. <laughs> it's insane, though. And that's... This is how FBI profiling began. This was the that's awesome. early ages of it. That's awesome, though. All right, guys. So, we finally got through the COVID episode. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've, been, we've been recording this for at least two hours, it feels like, because all the breaks we've had to take for coughing and sneezing. and. Well, thanks for hanging in there with us, guys, and I hope you enjoyed this story, as sad of a story as it is. It is definitely one of the more interesting stories it is, it we've is ever a, covered. It is a very interesting, like, just be, like, just because you, like, what you said with all the cutting-edge science that was being brought to a little case in Wood River. Right. Well, you know, so... Well, and when you guys are listening to this story, we are about four days out from our one-year anniversary of the Midwest Crime Files. I Isn't can't that crazy? Be, and we're already on season three. Yeah. So, this Sunday, January 16th, we are going to be going live on Facebook at 7 p.m. to celebrate one year. And right after our live, we are going to have a very special bonus episode dropped for you guys. And so we hope you enjoy that. That episode is going to take us to Granite City and to Sparta. So tune in for that. Don't miss that one. That's yeah. another good one. Oh, I can breathe a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so hopefully by the time we record the next episode, hope, hope, we'll hope, be over this COVID a little bit better. Hopefully by the time we get we go to the live will be freaking better. That's I like, hope so. I mean, like from I don't time want recording. you guys to have to listen to us cough and hack. God, it's been a rough one. It sure has. All right, guys. Thank you, guys. Make sure you like and follow us on Facebook. And for a list of our references and pictures, visit us at www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. If you want to visit our store, use the coupon code NEWYEARS in all caps, and you will get 10% off any item. All right, guys. Well, I guess that's the end of this episode. We'll see you next week. Bye.